Welcome back. I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And you're joining us for Moral Matters. Since our last podcast, we've had a bunch of people join us by Twitter and by Facebook, and we're really enjoying hearing your stories. Today, what we're going to be speaking about is both Wendy's story and my own story, and we'd invite you to contact us again with uh, your own uh, questions and stories to uh, be part of the conversation. So, Simon, why don't, why don't you start us off with what your experience has been? I'd be happy to. Back uh, three, three and a half years ago, uh, the ideas of burnout were becoming very popular in hospitals. And many of the large academic hospitals were doing surveys, surveying their clinicians to see if they had symptoms of burnout uh, with the idea that this would be ultimately impacting their physicians and potentially patient care. And my hospital was no exception to that. And I filled out a very long survey, um, checked a, a lot of boxes. And at the end of the survey, I thought to myself, you know, I'm actually scoring pretty bad on the survey. <laughs> How bad was it? <laughs> I was pretty close to the bottom of the class. Um, and that's not an experience that you want when you're a clinician. So I, uh, I thought about this very closely and um, I called some of the people that were involved in my hospital's uh, faculty well-being and uh, um, faculty uh, development department and said, you know, um, I, I, I'm, I'm scoring worse on this than I would have expected. Um, and I want to know what I should do about it. And I got a lot of advice, and I went out and read a lot of papers and watched a lot of YouTube videos. And um, I started to think that I should do something about it. And so I started by, by hiring a coach, and I spent more time focusing on exercise and diet and all the typical resilience kind of measures. And they all went well. I really enjoyed um, doing these things. And I really found that some of the advice that I could find for myself by using a coach was, was helpful. And I was able to make a small impact on some of the things going on day to day for me. The problem was that most of the things I was doing were focusing on my own direct well-being, my own resilience. And they were good while I was doing them. So going out for a run in the weekend felt great. But then coming back in on Monday morning and finding that all of the things that were still getting in the way of me providing care for my patients hadn't really changed. And so the struggle that I found was that I was doing everything that I was told to do. I was doing everything that the advice out there suggested I should do to help me with what was an impending issue with burnout. And in spite of that, I was still getting frustrated with the situation I was in and still struggling to change the situation I was in. And it was at that stage that Wendy, who was administering a grant that I was involved with, and I started speaking, and we realized that although I was on the surgical reconstructive plastic surgery side of the spectrum and Wendy was on the psychiatry side of the spectrum, we both had similar experiences with various aspects of the healthcare system detracting from our ability to put patients first and provide the care that we knew we should be providing. Yeah, so I had spent most of my career up to that point trying to find a way that I could practice medicine that allowed me to take the best care of my patients and was sustainable for me. So I had changed how I practiced multiple times. I had gone from a large academic medical center to an employed position where I was working for somebody else to running my own practice. 
all as a way to try to give patients the care that I thought they needed, give them the attention they needed, the time they needed. And each one of those moves was successful to a degree. But over time, it became harder and harder to get my patients what they needed. And I felt like I had this tension of, can I continue to practice medicine in a way that I don't think is good for patients? And ultimately, the answer for myself was that I, I didn't feel like I could choose to do that. And instead, what I decided to do was to change how I had an impact on medicine by going out and doing grants management funding. So managing the research that would bring new knowledge into the field, which was great. And the, the really fascinating thing about that was that it allowed me to see clinicians who were practicing in various different environments all across the country. So I got to see what their experience was and how they were managing in the context of their own healthcare environments, which were very different. And the longer I was in that position, the more I realized that a lot of the clinicians I was working with were, were on paper at the tops of their games. They were great researchers. They were great clinicians. People went to them. They were experts in their field. So people went to them for advice all the time. And I would have expected that they would be probably some of the happiest clinicians I'd known. And yet what I was finding was that every one of them still loved medicine, deeply loved medicine, but struggled on a day-to-day -day basis to figure out how they could take care of their patients. And they were continually doing workarounds to try to get people the care they needed. And that was very frustrating for those clinicians. And so I started thinking about why that was. And marrying that with my own experience of how did I change my practice? Why did I change my practice? I started thinking, you know, that there's, there's something at the, at the very core of this that goes against why I went into medicine in the first place. I was working in the field of regenerative medicine at this time, but right down the hallway was the office that was managing the research funding for the military suicide prevention effort. So this was around the same time that the military was alarmed by the high suicide rate in military, active duty military and veterans. And the response to that from the military was to immediately put $100 million of research funding into understanding why this suicide rate was so high and what they could do to mitigate that suicide rate. And I was interacting with that office on a fairly regular basis. Because I was right down the hallway, I was often the only psychiatrist available at, that, at the very moment. Um, and so I would get called in to answer questions or to just get curbsided. At the same time, I had read about a physician who died by suicide. And I, it started me thinking, what is, how, are, how is the physician suicide rate connected to the military suicide rate? What, what, how do they compare? And it turns out in doing back of the envelope calculations that the physician suicide rate was even higher. And when I looked at the nurse's suicide rate, it is higher than the general population as well. And 
so I started thinking, how are we, how are we as a healthcare system managing this crisis? And what I, what I learned was that we were making a lot of attempts to address burnout by, by helping people, um, learn to, learn to meditate and to be more mindful and to do some relaxation techniques like yoga. But none of those programs seemed to be having the level of impact that we would hope that they would have. And so I, I asked Simon, since he was a practicing surgeon, um, in the thick of it, I said, you know, what, what do you think? And that's what started our conversation back and forth about whether burnout, you know, what, what was at the bottom of this crisis of clinician distress? Was it burnout? Was it something else? And about that stage, Wendy and I uh, started with essentially a thought experiment. We worked together to put a paper together that was eventually published in Stat News. And we put this together pretty quickly and decided to see what the reaction would be from other people who may be interested in this topic. And I was pretty convinced that it was going to go nowhere. But it didn't go nowhere. Um, and ultimately, about 250,000 or more people read this article. Um, and following that, it became one of the uh, very highly read articles in Stat News for both that year and the following year. And that generated a deluge of emails to both of us with people's own stories, with concerns that people had, and uh, with questions about what people could do about this. And we realized at that point that there were a lot of other people that were feeling the same way. There were a lot of other people who had the same experiences. And there were a lot of people that felt that something needed to be done about this. Yeah, the language, the language just resonated. I, I can't think of any, other, any better way to say it, but it resonated with people. They felt it viscerally. And we had so many clinicians and, and actually other folks, uh, lawyers and educators and veterinarians, contacting us saying, this is the language I've been looking for for the past 20 years. And, and so it clearly struck a nerve and makes us think that this is a conversation we should be having with a lot of people. And the best way to do that is to bring you into it. So we'd like to hear more from you out there and hear what your stories are and hear what your thoughts are about the topic of moral injury. So Simon, I, 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 I want to ask you, you have this great story about when you were flying and how, how an experience for you kind of illustrated what you're struggling with at work. And can you share that? Yeah, this is a story that other people have, have um, uh, also said to me was a similar experience that they had. Um, maybe a couple of years ago, I was flying to New Zealand. It's a pretty long flight. And from LA to New Zealand is about a 12 to 14 hour flight. And um, on the plane, uh, a couple of people got sick and they asked if there was a doctor on board. And of course, being a doctor, I said yes and went to help those folks. And no one was particularly sick, but they, they did need a doctor and they did need experience. And what I realized as I was taking care of these people was that this was an environment that was totally foreign to what I was used to. I had all the time in the world to take care of these people. In fact, I had 12 hours to hang out with these people and make sure that they were taken care of. 
I didn't have any electronic health record that I had to fill out. The most I had to fill out was a few checkboxes on a piece of paper to say what I'd done. Um, there were none of the constraints in the way. There wasn't the time problem. There weren't the documentation issues. I didn't have to bill them for anything. It was entirely free care. And what I could do was take care of these patients in the way that I thought was intrinsically best at the time that I was taking care of them with none of the things that are part of our structure of medicine these days getting in the way of me taking care of those people. And I didn't immediately realize it, but when I got off the plane, I thought to myself, what a fabulous experience that was. My flight had been interrupted by taking care of people and I couldn't watch my movies and things like that, but I'd really enjoyed myself. I was practicing medicine the way that I was originally taught, to talk to a patient, to examine them, and to do what I thought was the best thing for that person and to put them first and not to be distracted by all of the other things that happen in healthcare that get in the way of providing that good care for people. Um, and I think that is an experience that other people have had as well. I've spoken to many people who have said similar things that when they're in the developing world and there aren't all these computer systems and billing systems and time constraints in the way, that they feel like they're a doctor again. They feel like they're providing the kind of care that they always intended to provide. And so I, I think that's a prime example where it's obvious what is detracting from patient care. And I think um, I was on the other side of that. I was under the impression that when I was struggling with some of these issues um, of that that brought moral injury to the forefront for me, which I only identified in retrospect. But um, I was under the impression that it was only my issue that I had that I was keeping it pretty well contained and compartmentalized, and that it was my own struggle, but that it wasn't impacting the care that I provided, and it wasn't impacting my patients, and it wasn't impacting my colleagues' patients. I had an experience about three and a half years ago where. My husband got very ill. He got critically ill. And what I realized during the course of his hospitalization in the intensive care unit, that when the clinicians checked out, whether it was the doctors or the nurses or the billing folks, what happened was his care got delayed or there wasn't a creativity behind thinking through how to take care of him and what other avenues haven't been tried and should maybe be tried for him. And there just wasn't the impetus to go that extra mile, taking care of a patient who is desperately ill and thinking about where does he need to go next? Not, not where can we send him next because, because of the financial constraints of our healthcare system, but where is the place that will take care of him in the best way for the condition that he's suffering. Wendy, can you explain what happened to your husband and, and, and how you eventually got around the issue of moral injury for him? So my husband had a congenital heart defect. So he was born with a heart condition that he had lived with quite nicely for many decades, uh, for four decades. And over the course of several months, he started to deteriorate. And he would go to his own doctor or he would go to a specialist and they would give him a, a brief sort of treatment plan. And if he had questions or it wasn't working so well, he would call in and 
despite the fact that he was a doctor himself, he couldn't get a doctor to talk to him. And so he would, he would talk with a nurse, the intermediary of a nurse or a receptionist. And over time, his, his symptoms just got worse and worse. So eventually, my husband got to the point where he couldn't walk from our garage, which is 100 feet from our house, into the house. And at that point, he was hospitalized. And I was like, whew, okay, great. That means that he's going to get taken care of. And I don't have to be responsible 100% for his care and his monitoring anymore. So he went into the hospital over a holiday weekend. Over the course of that hospitalization, over a three-day weekend, he saw four different practitioners, four different clinicians who were taking care of him. His condition progressively got worse but they didn't change what they were doing to treat him. So somehow it seemed as though we were expecting the same treatment to have a different outcome. And I think there's some quote about that. But um, he eventually it got to the point where he was desperately ill. And we just, I, I insisted I eventually insisted that he get transferred out. Now, as a, as a physician, I kind of have an idea of how insurance works, how the hospital system runs, the triggers that you need to pull to move, move somebody along. But if, if I hadn't known those things, I'm not sure my husband would have been transferred in the time that he needed to, to move to a higher level of care. So I asked for a transfer at noon, and at nine o'clock at night, the same night, I was on the phone with risk management, and my husband's partner was on the phone with the president of the hospital, setting a deadline if he's not out by midnight, we're going to take this to the media. Because I couldn't think of another way to get the system to move. And eventually, at about 11.30 at night, <laughs> he was in an ambulance headed to a tertiary care center, to an academic medical center, a couple of hours down the road. And from the moment he got to that second hospital, the care was entirely different. So he went from a room that was, that was huge and had a beautiful view and was was brand new to a room that was in a basement with no windows. It was barely bigger than the bed that he was in. And yet he had a nurse next to him all the time. The teams who were taking care of him came through multiple times a day, whereas he had barely been seen. Maybe he was seen once a day at the previous hospital. And there was a constant monitoring of are we doing the right thing? Let's try this. Let's tweak that. Let's change the other thing rather than continuing to expect the same treatment to have a different outcome. So Wendy, somebody's going to say to you, so you transferred him from a little hospital to a big academic center and he got better care. But there's more to the story, right? There is a real uh, aspect of moral injury that plays into the care that he got. So what I found was that at that first hospital, it seemed as though every place that those doctors turned, their hands were tied. 
every time they turned around, there was something that kept them from doing what they knew their patients needed. And in the end, what it did was it, it put them in a position of almost learned helplessness where they didn't, they didn't feel like they could try anything because they were so convinced that it wasn't going to work anyway, that why waste the energy? And what that did was it, it, it really impacted the, the care that my husband got. And that's when I realized that it wasn't what I had experienced in the past wasn't just about me. Now, I, I think the condition that, or, or I think the level of distress that his physicians were facing was probably inordinate. I don't think every physician faces that level of challenge, but I do think that it, it tells us that this is a problem that we really need to be paying attention to. That if we're not taking good care of clinicians, they can't, they can't take good care of their patients. I think that's exactly right, Wendy. I mean, that's a key point of the story, right? Yeah. When a clinician is free to do their job well, they will take good care of a patient. And when they're struggling to do their job well, and worst of all, struggling to do their job well and hurting on the inside, it's really hard for them to take good care of patients. And, and that goes for doctors. It goes for nurses. I've heard it from public defenders, social workers, veterinarians, teachers, and hospital administrators in the pandemic have had the same struggle where each of them knows what their clients, their students need. Um, and when they can't get it for them, it's, it is, it's painful. Should we try and end on a positive note? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the good news is that my husband is fine. And he is doing well. He is back to the guy he was before, before he started to get sick. Um, and I think the lesson in that is, is that if, if we're curious and if we're creative and if we think outside of the strict bounds of the ways that we believe that we can address this challenge, we can help healthcare heal too. Right, so there are things that we can do about this and we'd like to hear more from you. Please uh, contact us and let us know your stories and some of the ideas that you have. Uh, we'll be interviewing people over the next few sessions and they have ideas as well and some thoughts about solutions. So uh, please join the conversation. You can find us at fixmoralinjury.org or join us on Twitter at WendyDeanMD, at SimonTalbotMD or go to Facebook Moral Injury of Healthcare. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for joining us. So in two weeks, we're going to be having a conversation with somebody that we have been looking forward to for a long time. Absolutely. Dr. Don Berwick is the uh, former president and CEO of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and uh, someone we've spoken to a lot over the last year. And he is one of the biggest, most compassionate thinkers in healthcare, currently the senior fellow at IHI, and we are excited to share our conversation with you all. We hope you'll join us then.